Our text this morning is the dazzling vision of Christ seen by the imprisoned Apostle John, the exiled and imprisoned Apostle in Revelation chapter 1, our New Testament lesson. Now, of course, there is much to say about Christ's resurrection, but this text unveils its significance in a breathtaking way. There is in this short passage a river, like a cascade, a kaleidoscope, an array of images. It's as if they come pouring out of John. They're drawn from the law, they're drawn from the prophets, but they're reworked freely by John under the Spirit. Now, it's not my intention this morning to get bogged down in the details of the portrait. But what I want to do is selectively point out some prominent features. I want us to feel the overall effect of the passage in Revelation 1. The overall effect of which, as you heard when it was read, was not aesthetic pleasure, but rather was to make John fall down as though dead. So with that, we'll make five points. You can find them in the back of your bulletin on page 5. He lives, he is radiant, he reigns, he speaks, he comforts. He lives, he reigns, he is radiant, he speaks, he comforts. So first then, he lives. He lives. The whole vision that John receives is an unfolding of the triumphant Easter declaration. Christ is risen. Alleluia. He is risen indeed. Right? To a fallen, face-down John, the exalted Christ says in verse 17, this is at the end of the text, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. This is a designation, the first and the last, that God uses of himself in the prophets, particularly in Isaiah. And earlier in this chapter, John heard this. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the equivalent to the first and the last. Alpha and Omega, first letter of the Greek alphabet, last letter. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. So at the outset, when Jesus calls himself the first and the last, he is saying nothing less than, I am the Lord God, the Almighty. And as such, our text says, he is the living one. Now, it's one thing to confess that Jesus is risen. But that confession is not grasped in its glory and in its depth unless we see who this Jesus is. And who he is is he's the eternal son of the Father. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity who assumed a human nature. And yet he's not two people. He's one person. And that one person is divine, the Son of the Father. And in John's Gospel, we're told, the same John in his Gospel, right, tells us that the Father has life in himself. And he has given to the Son to have life in himself. The life that the Father has 
from eternity, fullness of life, abundant life, indestructible life, divine life, that life the Son shares from all eternity with the Father. So it's important to see this, even before the resurrection, even before his incarnation as a baby, yea, even before the worlds have begun, even from all eternity, Jesus is the God of life, the God who simply is and is life. He is the living one. And that one tells John, I died. I died. Meaning, as man, in my human nature, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Now here I want us to see two things about realizing who Jesus is as the God of life. First, it means this. It means the resurrection could not possibly have not happened. That's a double negative, I know. So, so let's say it this way. The resurrection was inevitable. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, says this. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The outcome is never in doubt because of who this one is. It was not possible for him to be held by death. So among other things, the resurrection is an unveiling of who Jesus is. He's the Lord of life. He's the I am of Exodus 3. He is the God who is existence itself. And as such, death and Hades, of which he now holds the keys, were no match. It was impossible for him to remain dead because he is the living one. You can catch this in our opening prayer where it says, Brightness of God's glory, an exact image of God's person whom death could not imprison. Right? Whom the tomb could not imprison, whom death could not conquer. The second thing I want you to see is that the resurrection does not return Jesus to the state of affairs before his death. No one reading this vision could believe that. Other news, you know, other humans, this should not be news, other humans have been raised from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Hebrews 11 speaks of women receiving their dead back by resurrection, part of the Jewish tradition even before the Christian era. And these are marvels, but they are not Easter. And this is not resuscitation. The whole ambience of the scene is that John, to see it, is lifted up into heaven itself. In the spirit on the Lord's day, we're told. Even by John's time, in the first century, Christians are calling this day, Sunday, the Lord's day. For it was the day which commemorated the resurrection of Christ. The day which looked forward to the day of the Lord and the new creation. So Jesus is raised in the power of the age to come, into the heavenly realm of God's own glorious life. He's raised out of death then, 
Not with some new earthly life. It's not like he gets some super healthy bodily life back. He's raised in immortal, deathless glory. He's raised into another order of existence. He's raised to full human participation in the very eternal, indestructible life of God. He has now, in his body, eschatological life. The life of the age to come. And thus, while he died in his humanity, death no longer, the apostle tells us, has dominion over him. He is alive forevermore. Right? Lazarus was alive for a little while, then died again. The Hebrew women received their, their dead back by resurrection. They eventually died. This one is alive forevermore. He has in his risen, risen flesh brought life and immortality to light. He's dealing with the heart of the human predicament. And because he lives, we shall live. Because he is now in his humanity, what he has always been in his divinity, that is immortal, you too shall be clothed with immortality in the day of resurrection. He is life. And because as God he is life, as man he lives, and therefore is alive forevermore. Right? And thus, as its conqueror, he holds the keys of death itself in his own hands. Every fact in the cosmos is subordinate to this fact. To these two words. He lives. Secondly, this morning, he is radiant. This life is life which illumines and irradiates and transfigures the humanity of Jesus. And before this scene in Revelation 1... It was only glimpsed one other place. And that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Where Jesus was transfigured. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And the disciples, one of whom was John, fell down again. Terrified. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration was a preview of the scene in our text. It was a foretaste of what John sees here. Because it was a flooding of the humanity, right? the embodied human nature of Christ with the divine light and the divine splendor and the divine glory. And so here, when John sees the risen one, you get much the same imagery. Whiteness like snow, eyes blazing fire, feet glowing like burnished bronze. And the last thing we're told before John collapses at his feet, is his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. So Christ is not only raised immortal to endless and indestructible life, but precisely because he's alive with the life that is God himself. Right? Precisely because he is the, the radiance of the Father's glory, he is raised in surpassing, blinding, terrifying splendor. Right? If he did not speak in this text, one could not connect the historical figure of Jesus of Nazareth with the figure that John sees in Revelation chapter 1. 
This is the glory. This is the embodied luminosity that Paul tells us he's going to bestow on our corruptible bodies. This is what the Christian hope is. This is the reason the heavenly city needs no sun. The Lamb is its light. He's alive and he is radiant. And that radiance is destined to heal and to infuse and to liberate and to light up the whole creation. Thirdly, he reigns. He is alive, he is radiant, and he reigns. Now, the Roman emperors, they had special days set apart for emperor worship. There, were the, there was this emperor's day and that emperor's day, but this is now called the Lord's Day. And it asserts that Jesus rules, both now and in the age to come. So to gather here on this day is to make a political statement, right? It's a declaration of allegiance to the king. And by its very nature, to gather here on this day, the day of the Lord, the Lord's day, is to relativize all other claims to dominion. And the voice, the voice that John hears in the passage is like a loud trumpet. We heard some beautiful trumpets. This is a very loud trumpet. And trumpets were used in the Old Testament in Israel to call them to battle, to call them to worship. They're used in the New Testament to herald the coming of the Lord at the end of the age. So what is this? This is kingly warfare imagery. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah, triumphantly roaring. That's what John hears. And then he sees one like a son of man. Also a kingly figure from the book of Daniel. The son of man comes up to the ancient of days, to God himself, and receives universal dominion. He brings to an end the domination of all the beastly world empires. Fire issued from the throne of the Ancient of Days in that scene in Daniel. Here, the fire issues from the eyes of the Son of Man, which is another implicit claim to his divinity. Eyes of flaming fire. This fire, then, blazing in these eyes, penetrates down, not only into our secrets, but into the secrets of history as well. These eyes will burn the impurity And sin out of his people, they will scour the earth of evil. Next, John says his feet were as burnished bronze. Bronze bronze was harder than ordinary gold or silver. It was used for weapons. So his feet are armor-like because under him his enemies shall be subdued. This one, Christ the risen king, is a fearsome warrior. But John isn't finished. From his mouth comes a a sharp, two-edged sword. This is the messianic sword, the breath of the Lord from Isaiah 11, which strikes the earth and slays the wicked. The word of this one is the locus of true power in the earth. This same word will appear 
coming out of the mouth of the same Christ in Revelation 19 when he destroys the kings of the earth and all the enemies of God in a final battle. To be the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, is to be the potentate, the exhaustively sovereign Lord over the beginning, the middle, the end, the totality of history. When we claim that Christ is risen, I hope you're grasping this, we are not making a little minor claim that can be shoved off into the corner somewhere, or even a major claim that can be situated among all of history's other major claims. We are making the claim that this is the only thing that matters in the cosmos. That's the claim. He reigns, and that reign shall be publicly, universally, without exception, acknowledged, even by his enemies. Not a single tongue shall fail to confess that Jesus Christ, not Caesar, not the state, Jesus Christ is Lord and King. So by now, we may be getting a little more than we wanted for Easter. Let me ask you this. Is the Jesus you see here in Revelation chapter 1, the Jesus that John sees, is that your Jesus? Because let me tell you, after Easter, that's the only Jesus there is. Right? There's no historical carpenter walking around in sandals in heaven. This is the figure that's raised. There's no little baby. Right? There's, no, there's no one dying on the cross. Yes, it's the same person. But this is what he looks like when you see him now. And that, so that means his life, his radiance, his reign, they are not manageable. They are not tame. They shatter and convulse souls, and they shall convulse men and nations. And they shall convulse and reconstitute the cosmos. <coughs> it's this or it's nihilism. That's the Christian confession. It's this or it's nothing. This is what, then, the gentle, the good, the loving, the tender, the merciful reign of God in Christ looks like to a world that's enmeshed in death and deceit, and idolatry. Yes, this is strong medicine, but the whole point of Easter, and thus the whole point of Christianity, is that our condition is dire. Right? And that we need the strongest of remedies. We need apocalyptic, cataclysmic intervention. We need resurrection out of the death in which we live and to which we go. We need the cemeteries emptied. I mean, you can adhere to a religion that doesn't claim to empty the cemeteries. I, for one, am not interested in it. I want the cemeteries emptied out. That's what the claim of the Christian gospel is. The human predicament is utterly dire because it ends in disintegration and death and judgment. We need the one with the keys, the emblem of kingly rule, the keys of death itself. And of the underworld, we need the reign of this Christ. We need the kingdom of God to come. He's alive, he's radiant, and he reigns. Fourth, he speaks. Jesus is not silent. Often, people will claim that he is. 
But that's because we refuse to hear him where he has told us to listen. In Scripture, written by his hand-picked witnesses like John here. Right? John himself is one of these witnesses. And he's imprisoned, precisely, the text says, on account of the word, the speech of God, and the testimony of Jesus. You go back to the beginning, to the root of this scene. The whole thing is revealed because a voice addresses John. The risen Christ is not mute. He is eloquent. And he commands John to write. And those writings are where we hear his voice today. Nor is he whispering, hoping somebody will pay attention. Right? The risen one speaks to John in this loud trumpet-like voice. This voice now heard by us in the text is like thunder. Right? In, in the voice of Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, speaking in Holy Scripture, the God of glory thunders. And John says the voice he hears is like the sound of many waters. Right? Awesome and majestic. It's the same sound made by the living creatures who carry the throne of God in Ezekiel's vision. A sound that Ezekiel calls the sound of the Almighty, the sound of tumult, the sound of an army. But it's a voice so powerful, so utterly determinative for creation, that it can only be likened. I hear John grasps for ways to express this voice to us. It can only be likened to the matchless strength, the volcanic, dangerous, threatening beauty of the sea. It's a voice that sounds like the roar of many waters. It's that voice which speaks to John, fallen at his feet as though dead. And it's this voice, enshrined in Scripture, which rings out through the church in all of her weakness, weakness and brokenness and frailty and all of that. That voice rings out through the church's proclamation of the gospel. He's alive. He's radiant. He reigns and he speaks. Finally, finally he comforts. Jesus, as dreadful and heavenly a figure as he is, is nonetheless near to his people. Because John sees one here, like a son of man, walking in the midst of the lampstands. And we're told just after our text that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. So through the Spirit, Jesus dwells. He situates himself. He walks in the midst of the church. He's transcendent in glory, and he's present to us in all of our Distresses and danger and tears of which these battered churches that John is writing to, they were facing plenty. So Jesus, who's got the whole world in his hands, right, his nail-scarred hands, he holds the churches, he holds you in those same hands. So underneath the trauma and underneath the drama of life, which can threaten to undo us, right, are these everlasting arms. It is this one, in all of his terrifying splendor, 
all of what C.S. Lewis called his scary goodness. It is this one whose promises never to leave you or forsake you, who says, I am with you even to the end of the age. This one is near to the brokenhearted. This one says he won't snuff out a smoldering wick. This one is for you in such a way that none can be against you. When you have this one on your side, none can be against you. This God in this text, believe it or not, revealed in Jesus Christ, is the God of all comfort. You know how you're going to get real comfort? You need God to be the God of all terror in order for him to be the God of all comfort. Right? This one whose terrible beauty is the one who makes all terrors flee. Right? This is the one whose dreadful glory removes all other dread, whose fear casts out all other fears. And here what he does is he places his right hand, the hand of authority and might, the hand which holds the churches, and he lays that hand on a fallen and trembling John. John has died, and he is here resurrected to fulfill his commission as a prophet. And the Lord says to him, what he has risen says to all. Now, we've heard a lot about this figure in this text. When he speaks, do you know what he says? Fear not. Fear not. No other Jesus but this Jesus can drive all fears away. Fear not. It seems like a pretty fearsome vision, does it not? One would think the whole point of the vision is to terrify us. In fact, it terrified John. John fell down at his feet. There's terror in the vision, but guess what? This is the last word. And it's the first post-Easter word. It's the perpetual word to those who worship this Christ. Fear not. Why? There were a lot of things for them to fear. Just like there's lots of things for us to fear. Well, Jesus tells us why not. This is what he says to John. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and I, behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He lives. He is radiant. He reigns. He speaks. And he lays his hand on our trembling and our threatened and our frail lives, and he comforts. He says, fear not. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.